do other people influence our behavior? That is the question. We'd all like to think that other people don't change our behavior or don't even change our thoughts. But the reality is, is that other people, even people just around us and in our vicinity, actually change the way that we behave. Sometimes they may actually even change the things that we think in addition to changing how we act. Those are some of the things that we're going to be talking about this week when we talk about Chapter 7 on social identity and social influence. How long do you think it takes for you to form an impression about somebody? The first time that you've ever met them, they walk up to you, you're introduced to them. How quickly have you formed an impression about them? I know for most of you, you're thinking, oh, it takes a few minutes. I wait until they talk. I wait and see. I don't form impressions about people. But research indicates otherwise. Social psychology researchers have been looking at some of these things. And when we're talking about person perception, it's how quickly you're forming an impression about other people. And there are some key things that go into forming our impression. First and foremost, unfortunately, is our appearance. Appearance is the first thing that we use to form an impression about somebody else. And that is because researchers have found that we typically form an impression about somebody very quickly, within the first few seconds of meeting them. We have made a decision about what we think about that person almost immediately, which is really typically based on appearance. There are other things that factor in, like verbal behavior, actions, nonverbal behavior, which is like how they're carrying themselves. Do they have their arms crossed? Do they have a facial expression that maybe says that they're not, you know, likable or that maybe that they're having a good day or having a bad day? And then there's also some situational cues that also go into forming an impression. But really and truly, we form an impression very, very quickly. And oftentimes we refer to this as a snap judgment or a gut feeling. We immediately formed an impression about that person and we weren't even sure what we've based it on. There are also some systematic judgments, and systematic judgments rely on more information. We utilize a little bit more time to come up and systematically evaluate person. So initially, you may make a snap judgment about a person. I don't know. There's just something about them that I don't like. And then over time, there may be um, other factors, behaviors that factor into that, that either confirm that judgment or may conflict with that judgment. And so we, over time, can systematically kind of make a bigger impression or make a bigger judgment about that person. Now, some of the things, and we've talked about attributions before. Attributions are how we, um, how, what we base somebody's behavior on. So there are, and we've, we've talked about some situational attributions, and then we've talked about internal attributions. Internal attributions are when we attribute a person's behavior to some internal disposition. So if you were to meet somebody and maybe you didn't get a good impression about them, you may automatically attribute their behavior to them not being a nice person. And you may say, they're just not a nice person. Versus if you met somebody and you didn't form a good impression about them, but then you said something like, well, maybe it was because 
um, of the time that I met them. You know, I met them when they were at work and um, there was a lot of people there and it was very busy and it was very chaotic and hectic. That's a situational attribution. So we're going to attribute their behavior to something, not necessarily an internal disposition, but maybe we are attributing their behavior to the situation instead. And so how we, and this oftentimes factors into our judgments about people, where do we attribute the behavior? For example, if you're driving down the street and somebody cuts you off, do you immediately say, man, what a jerk, he just cut me off. That would be an internal attribution or do you say, gosh, he must really be in a rush to get somewhere. Maybe he's running late for work. Maybe he's having a really bad day. That would be a situational attribution. And how we attribute their behavior oftentimes factors into those judgments that we make about people. And if we are attributing their behavior to internal dispositions, we're oftentimes going to have a more negative view of that person versus granting them a little bit more leniency because we all know we have bad days and we may behave in a manner in which we don't want other people to judge our behaviors as being internal attributions or something referring to our internal disposition. There is something called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is the tendency that we have as humans to explain other people's behavior as a result of personal attributions or internal attributions rather than situational or external uh, attributions. So when we look at another person's behavior, we tend to attribute their behavior to something internal like they're a jerk versus looking at their behavior and saying, man, they must be having a really bad day. Versus when we describe our own behavior, we tend to look at our own behavior and say, I was having a rough day. It was horrible. I didn't mean to snap at you, but I was under a lot of stress versus attributing our own behavior to internal dispositions, which would mean that we were the jerk in those situations. This is how we form impressions about other people is that we tend to be more in tune or we tend to attribute their behavior more to internal things versus external things. I challenge you to try and see from the other side and start attributing people's behavior maybe to situational things rather than internal dispositions. The other unique thing that happens when we are forming impressions about other people is we actually are aware that other people are forming impressions about us. And so when we're meeting somebody for the first time, we're aware of that um, perception forming that they're taking place in. And so there's a couple of things that can happen. And these are some perceiver expectations. When we know somebody else is forming an impression about us, we can actually um, do what is called the self-fulfilling prophecy. And the self-fulfilling prophecy is when we actually live up to what they expect us. So if you think back to maybe elementary school or even middle school, if you had an older sibling or 
if you had teachers that talked from grade to grade, you would move up maybe from the third grade to the fourth grade, and the teacher would already know that you're a good reader. How did they know that you're a good reader? They had talked to your third grade teacher, and so then this may become a self fulfilling prophecy, and that you become a much better reader because the teacher thinks you're a good reader. The same thing can happen with bad situations. If you had an older sibling who maybe was the class clown, and so when you moved up in grade and you got the same teacher that your sibling had, and that teacher knew your sibling as a class clown, you may actually become the class clown as well because you already had that that that. Prophecy was already in the teacher's head, or that impression was already in the teacher's head, and so it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the problem with this is, and we aren't even aware that we're doing it, but sometimes when we know that people have a certain impression about us, we live up to that impression. Or when we think that people may have a certain impression about us, we live up to that impression, and that is damaging because it becomes a confirmation bias. So, for example, I'm going to pick on hair color for a minute because we all know that it's absolutely ludicrous to think that your hair color is in any way, shape, or form tied to your intelligence or your achievement level. However, if you're a blonde and you know that people view blondes as having more fun and not being as intelligent, you may fulfill that prophecy. And the way that you would fulfill that prophecy is that when you meet somebody, you may actually act a little bit more airheaded, or you may act less intelligent because you already know that they have that impression. That people have that impression: oh, blondes aren't as intelligent as they have much more fun. And so then, when you fulfill that prophecy, it becomes a confirmation in the other person's head. They have just fulfilled that prophecy. They've just fulfilled that stereotype. Oh yeah, look, she's having more fun than the rest of us. It's because of her blondness, and so it becomes a confirmation to that other person, and it's going to strengthen that stereotype. So, how do we combat this? We don't. We don't play into those stereotypes that people have. We don't fulfill those expectations that people might have about us, and instead, we, you know, contradict it. We don't try to fulfill those expectations, and instead, we form an impression and we present ourselves in a manner that is truthful and not in a manner that would be fulfilling that stereotype. And this will actually, when we have somebody that、um, doesn't meet our expectations, for example, I'll pick on Walmart for a minute. Walmart has a stereotype of not having good customer service. When you go into Walmart and you get bad customer service, what is that going to do for that stereotype? It's going to confirm. It's going to create this confirmation bias, where then all of a sudden you think, "Oh yeah, well, I should have expected that." But if you go into Walmart and you have really great customer service, I went into Walmart recently and I had great customer service. The man was amazing. He did, you know, he went above and beyond to help me find what I was looking for and to really help me out. And so that actually created some cognitive dissonance or a cognitive distortion because I had this thought. 
that I was going to get bad customer service based on this stereotype. He didn't fulfill that prophecy. He didn't confirm my bias. And so now I'm faced with, do I change my mind about their stereotype or about what my expectations for Wake for Walmart are? This one encounter may change the way that I think about Walmart. However, the reality is, is that we know repeated times or repeated exposures would really yield the strongest results in changing my impression of Walmart. Because think about it, if you go in one time and you have good customer service, you may think it's a fluke. If you go in two or three times and you have good customer service, then it's really going to help to diminish that stereotype and to really change your impression about Walmart and their customer service. So I've mentioned stereotype a couple of times now, and I want to clarify stereotypes because, for first of all, stereotypes are not all bad. Stereotypes are a very quick way in which we can categorize information. We have lots of information coming at us all the time, and our brains need a quick and efficient way to categorize information. And so stereotypes, we can very quickly um, form impressions because uh, our stereotypes do factor into forming a quick impression. And so it's a very quick way that we can um, form a snap judgment. It also um, can be successful in forming an impression about people. However, Stereotypes, which are widely held beliefs that people have about certain characteristics because the person belongs to a certain group. So, for example, we're talking about students. Um, students may have a um, stereotype or we may characterize um, certain characteristics of students based on their membership as a student. That, you know, we may believe that um, they don't have anything, they don't hold a job, or all they do is, is go to classes. Um, we may believe that, uh, you know, certain students are not ready to learn or are not willing to be successful. Uh, so there's all kinds of stereotypes that we hold based on that, um, based on those characteristics that they belong to those groups. We belong to lots of different groups, if you think about it, uh, and we categorize people based on lots of different groups. Now, the problem with stereotypes is when our stereotypes are not actual or our stereotypes are not factual. When we have a stereotype of a person based on their membership and it may not be based on factual information or when that stereotype is because we have come in contact with individuals and so then we generalize it across a whole group. So going back to our hair color and intelligence, maybe we've encountered a couple of individuals who had blonde hair and were not intelligent. Now, should we categorize that across or should we generalize that across a whole group of individuals? Of course we shouldn't, but sometimes we do and that is not um, a good uh, thing to do because then it can create prejudice and prejudice is having a negative attitude toward members of a particular group. So if we came in contact with several individuals who had blonde hair color and we found them not to be as intelligent and then we developed a negative attitude towards them, oh my gosh, they're just, 
you know, they can't help it. They're not as smart because they have blonde hair color. Again, absolutely ludicrous to think that your color of hair would have any determining factors on your intelligence. And then when it really becomes dangerous is when we start to discriminate, when we start to behave differently towards that member of group. And we can behave differently in a number of different ways, meaning that we could say things like, oh, you know what? Since you have blonde hair, I'm going to help you out on this exam because you're not really as smart as everybody else. That's discriminating as much as it is to say, oh, you have blonde hair. You're not going to be smart enough to be in this class, so we can't put you in that class. That's discrimination as well. We're treating them differently. And whether we're treating them unfairly in a positive way, meaning trying to help them, or treating them unfairly in a negative way, trying to hurt them, either way, it is discrimination. And we're changing our behaviors towards them based on their membership in the group. And that is when stereotypes really become dangerous. And um, that then, our prejudice, our negative attitudes towards them really start to um, come out because, and again, most of the time, not rightfully so because it's not based on factual information, but instead it's based on this impression that we have formed of them. And typically it's based because of a few interactions with a few small people that have then been generalized across a whole category of individuals. Now, what causes prejudice? There's a lot of things that cause prejudice. Uh, competition between groups and even competition within groups can cause prejudice and cause um, discrimination. Um, there's also the stereotype threat, and there is threats to social identity. A threat to our own social identity or how our identity is perceived by society can actually cause prejudice and discrimination as well. One of the um, most interesting research studies that was done was the Robbers Cave study in which um, they took a group of boys, and this was done back in the 50s, they took a group of boys at a camp, a summer camp, and they intentionally selected boys that were all very, very similar. Similar in appearance, similar in socioeconomic standards, similar in, in grade standpoint. From all aspects, they should have liked each other based on what our research indicates. However, what they did was they divided them into two groups and they made them compete against each other. And so these boys that really and truly were very, very similar now started to hate each other. And so what they were looking at is, could they divide a group of individuals and turn them against each other? And the answer was yes, they could. Very quickly and very easily, they made them compete for limited resources, or they made them compete for things like, you know, food and water and trophies. And very quickly, the group turned against, one group turned against the other group, and the other group turned against the other one. And so you had this group of individuals who really and truly were the same, but were uh, prejudiced and discriminatory towards each other. And it's kind of ironic because they had nothing really to be prejudiced or to discriminate against the other group, except the fact that they were in competition for something. 
And then they took it a step further and wanted to see, could they bring this group of boys back together so that they did not view them in a discriminatory or in a prejudice with the, that they didn't view them with a prejudice um, lens and that they didn't act discriminatory against them. And what they did was they were actually able to bring them back together. And the way that they were able to reduce their prejudice and eliminate their discrimination was by intergroup contact. They worked together. They had these boys work together for a common goal. Their food truck got stuck. It didn't really get stuck. They had staged this. But the food truck got stuck. And so they all had to work together to get the food truck unstuck so they could all eat dinner together. That was they were working towards a common goal to eliminate the prejudice and the discrimination. The key here is that stereotyping is our thoughts, prejudice is our negative attitudes, and then discrimination is our behavior. And in order to reduce discrimination, in order to reduce um, prejudice, and in order to even reduce our stereotypes, we have to have contact with individuals that we have those conflicting views about or even negative pre or even prejudice about. And when we work together for a common goal, we'll see. And when we focus on things that we have in common instead of things that are different, then we can see that our discrimination and our prejudice will decrease. Another aspect of social influence that we don't really think about, but that is a very, very powerful aspect of social influence is the power of persuasion. And when we're looking at persuasion, we're looking at things like how do we get people to change their behaviors or even their attitudes? So for example, in the robber's cave experiment, how did the experimenters get these boys to change their attitudes about the other group of boys that was essentially the same as them? And when we're talking about attitudes, what we're talking about is their beliefs and feelings about people or objects or ideas. And so we're not just looking at how we can get people to change their ideas about people or about other, you know, thoughts that they have, but also about products. And so it's really um, key to understand the aspects of persuasion, especially when we look at marketing. So there's a couple of elements that really kind of factor into persuasion and how we are able to persuade somebody or get somebody to change their ideas. And when we're talking about persuasion, we're talking about communicating arguments and information that is intended to change another person's attitudes. And so this is really kind of key nowadays. And, and one of the things that we have found is that the kind of universal in the communication of arguments and ideas or the power of persuasion is really found in actually listening to the other person, um, which is kind of counterintuitive because we think, well, when we want to change somebody else's ideas or change somebody else's attitudes, we have to tell them our side of the story. We have to tell them what our perspective is and then they'll understand it. But the reality is, is that listening to their side of 
what their argument is or why they're for or against whatever the idea is, that is actually more powerful in persuading somebody to change their ideas rather than beating them over the head with your ideas. So we're going to look at a couple of elements that factor into the persuasion process. The first thing that factors into the persuasion process is source factors, things like credibility and likability. Credibility is really key, especially when you're looking at a product. If you're if you're looking at buying a new toothpaste or finding a new bed or whatever it is, there's all kinds of credible sources out there. There is the, um, you know, People's Choice Awards. There are, um, you know, certifications for cars and mattresses and, and everything else that make it credible and make it reliable. And so then that really persuades people because, you know, four out of five dentists choose this toothpaste. And so that seems very credible. And so we think, oh, well, they must know something that we don't know. And so that makes it more credible. There's also the likability. A great example of likability of a product is Beats headphones. I'll pick on Beats headphones here for a minute because Beats headphones are um, really and truly rated as a mediocre set of headphones that cost about $12 to make. However, they had a great campaign that persuaded people to not only think that their headphones are amazing, but to get people to pay lots and lots of money for their headphones. Because although they're only a mediocre product that costs about $12 to make, what they did was they gave them to lots of famous people, athletes and movie stars. And so you were constantly seeing them all over the place. And somewhere in the back of our head, we think, oh, I want to be just like him. And so, you know, whoever it is, whether it's Shaquille O'Neal or Michael Phelps or whoever else is wearing the Beats headphones. So we think, I want to be just like him. I'm going to get a set of Beats too. And so that's that likability aspect that persuades us into liking their product. There are also some receiver factors, things like personalities and expectations and pre-existing attitudes. And so uh, immediately when I tell that story in class, I frequently am confronted with individuals who say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. My Beats headphones, though, they're a whole lot better. And that's that receive, those are those expectations. We have an expectation that the Beats headphones are a better quality because of the price and because all these famous people wear them. And so our expectation is that they're going to be better. So no matter what kind of information we give, oftentimes people are like, no, 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 that's actually, that's not really how it is. My Beats headphones really are better. Um, the other thing is the message. Uh, we have found that you are much more persuaded by a message that is two-sided. If you're able to discuss uh, the pros of a product and the cons of a product, take for example, maybe Beats headphones. Yes, they're, you know, a good product, they're reliable, but you can also discuss the cons of the product. That has more of a persuasion power than just talking about one side of the product. 
or one side of the argument. Um, and then the other power of persuasion is how it is persuaded. So whether it's via internet, via the radio, TV, source, or in person, we also know that people, especially when uh, this is uh, pertinent and they do lots of research with this with campaigns and political affiliations, and since there's, you know, whenever there's an election coming up, one of the things that they've found is that actually just getting a person's name out there no matter where it is, is actually good advertising. And the more that they see a person's name, the more likely they are to vote for that person, even if they know nothing about the person. Just seeing the name over and over and over again increases the sales of any product. And so that's one of those kind of persuasions that we aren't even aware of, is that that brand recognition all over the place. So one of the things that I want to address while we're talking about um, persuasion is some tools that we can use or some tools that are frequently used around us in regards to persuasion. And so we're looking at things like, and this, um, the book has it under compliance and it is kind of compliance because, but it's also kind of a persuasion. How do salespeople persuade you to buy their products? And how do they, how do people get you to comply or to change your behavior with their requests? Well, there's a couple of different tactics. The first one is the consistency principle. The consistency principle is that people often um, stay with their initial comments. So whatever um, people, you know, whatever people think about a product, they typically stay with their, um, with their commitments. And so using this, there's two techniques that are used to kind of get people to stay with their initial um, commitments. And so the first one is the foot in the door technique. And the foot in the door is getting people to agree to a small request in order to ask them for a later or a larger request later. So the idea is if you've been checking out at the grocery store or checking out anywhere, there's all kinds of campaigns. And this is usually like... Um, uh, the most recent one that I saw was for the Boys and Girls Club. And it said, do you want to donate a dollar to the Boys and Girls Club? And I've even seen the more recent one where they say, do you just want to round up, round your total sale purchase up to the nearest dollar? That's the foot in the door technique. They're asking for a very small request. Do you want to round it up? And you look at your total and you're like, oh, sure, my total is at $10.58. Sure, I can donate 42 cents. That is the foot in the door technique. And so they're asking for something very small up front. This happens all the time. You see this on infomercials. They'll say, you know, something like, would you be willing to, you know, they'll show you a product and then say something like, would you be willing to pay $12 for that product? And you're probably thinking, oh yeah, absolutely. Or the salesperson is saying, would you be willing to pay $12 for the product? And you're saying, yeah, I could pay $12 for that. I'd probably pay more for that. And then as they continue their sales pitch, it, the product price gets larger and larger and larger because initially then they are getting you to commit to it. The other thing that they're doing, the other um, gimmick that they might do with this is they may say something like, do you think that that would be of value? Or they may ask you a question, say, um, you know, do you think that a good night's sleep is essential for your health? And you say, oh yeah, I definitely think a good night's sleep is essential for my health. You have committed to that. And now they may go on and start to sell you their 
you know, mattress or their pillows or whatever it is. And they're asking for a larger and larger request as you continue. The second one is the low ball technique. And the low ball technique gets somebody to commit to something very small before then hidden costs are revealed. And this, you see this all the time where they're giving away something free. They're giving away a free, you know, diet pill and all you have to do is pay shipping and handling. That is the low ball technique. They've gotten you to commit. Do you want this for free? Oh yeah, absolutely. I want it for free. All you got to do is pay shipping and handling. Shipping and handling is probably $25.99 or something of that nature, but that's the low ball technique. You've committed to it already and now you're, now you're going to um, follow through with it. The next one is the reciprocity principle. The reciprocity principle is that you should pay somebody back in kindness or you should pay somebody back for whatever you receive. This happens a lot even in relationships or friendships. You feel like you owe somebody something. Um, if somebody does a good deed for you or does a favor for you, you're like, I'll pay you back sometime. That is the reciprocity reciprocity principle that you owe somebody. And so you're likely, and sometimes I hear people say things like, oh yeah, I'm not going to help them out because I don't want to have to owe them because they'll come back and collect. And that's that kind of reciprocity. The technique that goes along with this is the face in the door technique. And the face in the door technique is making a large request that will likely be turned down, but then they'll make a smaller request that you'll agree upon. So a, an example of this is if you go, um, you know, to purchase something and um, they tell you, they start with, you know, the most expensive one and you're like, oh no, I'm definitely not going to purchase that one. But then they say, well, how about this, this one that costs less? And then you're much more willing. You're like, oh yeah, well, in comparison, it's going to be so much cheaper. So of course I'll buy that one. And so they're asking for the smaller request to be agreed upon um, to, for you to follow through with later on. And so this too is another technique. And you see this a lot in marketing and gimmick and um, uh, infomercials where they say, you know, you know, it's at stores, this is selling for hundreds of dollars, but here you'll only pay $29.99 in four easy payments, which if you do the math, almost works out to the same thing. Um, and so that's the reciprocity. They're trying to um, make a really large request and you're like, oh, I would never pay hundreds of dollars for that. But when they mark the price down, then you're like, oh, I, that I would much, I would pay a whole lot less for that. This, you see this actually with clothing manufacturers a lot too. Um, any of your retail stores will have the actual retail price of, you know, whatever it is, jeans or t-shirts and it's $59.99 or maybe the jeans are $109, but then they're 40% off. That is, then you're going to look at that and you're saying, well, I'd never pay, you know, $100 for them, but I would pay $60 for them. And that you agree to. The next one, our consistency, or um, I'm sorry, the next one is the um, scarcity principle. And the scarcity principle really drives a lot of behaviors. Um, this one, and this is actually kind of key also to the robber's cave experiment, because what they found with the robber's cave experiment, as I mentioned, when resources were limited, prejudice and discrimination increased. So what they're trying to do with the scarcity principle is make people believe that they have to have it. 
because there's a limited number of them. And they do this every Black Friday. They'll bring you into the store because, you know, they've got, um, you know, the newest Xbox or the newest gaming system or whatever it is, but they're only going to have a few of them. And so they'll say, quantity's limited, you must get there early. So that drives up that excitement in people. They have to get it. And so they feel like they need it even more than they want. And retailers will tell you all the time, it doesn't matter um, how many of whatever it is. They, if they get a new Xbox or they get a, a new Apple iPhone or whatever it is, even if they mark it down and they're taking a loss on that product, it doesn't make a difference because once people are in the store, they're going to think that they need these things, whatever it is, and they end up selling way more because the people are in the store and making all these impulse purchases because everybody else is buying it. And you hear it all the time. People, um, if you're out Black Friday shopping, people will look in other people's carts and if there's a limited quantity of something or you can't, you know, get a amount of, you're only limited to buying so many of them, people will think that they need to have them. They want to have it more. And that's that scarcity um, principle. And so all of these are really used to kind of not only persuade us to purchase something, but also they're used to get us to change and conform our behaviors. And so when we're looking at um, some other social pressure, there's conformity and compliance. And conformity is when we change our behavior um, to either real or imagined social pressures. So even if there's you know, just a imagined social pressure, we oftentimes will change our behaviors for even that imagined social pressure. Compliance is when we change to social pressure in our public lives, but our private lives, we haven't changed. So a good example of compliance is um, wearing a face mask in public right now. You may comply with wearing a face mask during a pandemic, but your um, private beliefs have not changed. And so you're willing to comply to the social pressure, but your public beliefs haven't changed. Now, conformity, the difference with conformity is that not only do your public behaviors change, so if you're conforming your behavior, you're wearing a mask and you're also thinking now that the mask is really beneficial and that everybody needs them. And so when we conform, we change our behavior um, and we also kind of change our private beliefs on it. We have conformed to whatever the social pressure is or whatever the group norms are. And so we see a lot of um, conformity occurring as well. The last social pressure that we're going to talk about is obedience. And obedience is very, very powerful. Um, we know because Stanley Milgram did a great experiment on obedience. He was very interested and his, um, what prompted his research was he wondered why all of the um, Jews were obedient. During the Holocaust, why did all of these people, knowing that they were gonna die, obey? Why didn't somebody stand up and revolt? Or why didn't somebody um, try and fight back particularly if they knew that their sentence was death anyways, what difference would it make? And so he started looking at why are people obedient and in what situations are people obedient? And what he found is that 
um, most people are obedient. He set up an experiment, it was called the shock experiment, in which people, they believed, he brought in um, uh, people, you know, from the general public, and he um, believed that they were shocking another person in order to get the person to change their behavior and to learn from their experience. They weren't actually shocking anybody, but they believed that they were shocking people. And he wanted to see how obedient would, would these individuals be. Would they go along with the researcher when all the researcher was saying was the experiment requires that you continue. And what he found was that the vast majority of people were obedient. We followed directions and we went along with it. And it really had to do with the kind of situation that the person is in. And so we can look at lots of different situations and we find that in the vast majority of the situations, people are obedient and we actually go along with the requests of whoever we perceive to be in power or whoever we perceive to be an authority figure. Um, this Stanley Milgram's experiment, as well as Philip Zimbardo's um, prison experiment, were key in looking at the power of social influence and social roles and how they have over our lives. Um, so although we like to think that we're individuals and that we uh, you know, don't just blindly conform our behaviors or that we aren't compliant, that we would be willing to stand up and go against what the norm is, we find that the vast majority of us are obedient and we, we conform and we comply our behaviors. And so the question that I'd like to leave you with is, what are you conforming to? What behaviors are you conforming to? And how is that conformity changing your attitudes? Because we've found that one of the most powerful ways to change your attitudes is to get you to change your behaviors. It's easy to change a person's behaviors and to get them to conform. It's much more difficult to, to get them to comply and change their attitudes. So once we conform your behaviors, it's a little bit easier to change your attitudes. So what behaviors are you conforming and to what social pressures are those behaviors being conformed? And then lastly, I would encourage you to use your powers of social pressure for good and to pressure people to do good things and to see the other side, to not jump to those internal attributes, but to maybe think about some situational attributes that may contribute to an individual's behavior. In addition, to looking at our own personal attributes.